Good morning, podheads. I know you were expecting the sweet sound of deal to serenade you per usual, but before we dive into this episode, I wanted to give you all a little State of the Union, uh, Dave edition, and explain explain this episode a little bit. This is an awesome show from September 20th, 1970, so a little over 52 years ago. Our plan initially was to record this and release it on Tuesday, September 20th, 2022, so exactly 52 years later, which we thought would have been very cool and very sentimental. Unfortunately, after we sat down and had it recorded, we realized that when editing, my microphone had done us no favors and technology had robbed us of about 90 minutes of conversation. Um, So first, I just wanted to give a quick explanation that I've been bouncing all around the country. You guys have heard us talk about my Alabama getaway. That was an extended trip down to Alabama. And I haven't really been in my own space for a long time. So trying to make this work despite all of that has been a little bit of a challenge. Second, I just wanted to apologize to all of you who join us on the regular or even on occasion uh, for the delay in getting the recording for this show out there, and especially an apology to Alex, who puts forth all the research and took incredibly detailed notes, only to have the issues on my end almost make us scrap the episode. Uh, Ooh, almost, that's right, because I think we've been able to salvage it after a little tweaking and splicing. Here is a shorter but sweet version of what Alex and I discussed when we initially recorded this. So, better late than never, an apology to all of y'all, but let's hit it, shall we? What would would it even be a working man's pot if we didn't have some tech issues to deal with? Probably not. So anyway, here we are coming to you folks to talk about a great, good old Grateful Dead show from September 20th, 1970 at the Fillmore East. So Dave, what we were talking about before we uh, deleted the beginning were two things. Number one, that we almost recorded this in person, which would have been glorious, but still happy to see you on Zoom. And the second thing is that this show came into our to-do list in a bit of an odd and kind of coincidentally lovely way. So around the time that we got to Jim's picks and we're doing the shows from 68 and 69, I had called into the Grateful Dead talk show on the Sirius XM channel to ask those two guys, especially Gary Lambert, because I know he's from New York, um, if they had seen any shows that ended with feedback, because that seems like such a unique and weird experience to go to a concert where then they just end with feedback. Like that just seems really cool to me. So when I asked them that Gary was like, I did not ever see that. I don't think I don't remember it if I did, but I did go to some awesome shows that ended with feedback into bid you good night. And the best example of that was this show from September 20th, 1970. And you should go check that out. And I was like, okay, yeah, definitely will do. And then uh, David Gans, the other co-host was like, oh yeah, that's like one of my, that's like a great show, like one of the best 
definitely check that out and even listen to um, the everything from the Dark Star on from the previous night because it's equally awesome. So we had that on our to-do list, like on our shows to talk about list ever since for the last seven months pretty much. So then in a coincidental turn of events, as we were trying to figure out what to talk about for our next show, our friend Zach Cropper, who was our first guest on this podcast, was asking me about shows from 1970. And I said, it's kind of a blind spot for me. I don't, I haven't listened to a ton of 70 dead. We were talking about um, Dave's Picks 43 and how he was like, I think a lot of this content, November, December 69 is like proto 70 dead but they just had it more mastered and it sounded a lot better in 70. And so I asked him for a good 70 show recommendation. He recommended coincidentally the same one that David and Gary did. So there's that saying, if uh, one person tells you you have a tail, you think they're crazy. If a second person tells you you have a tail, you better look behind you. Um, you probably have a tail. <laughs> and so having these two recommendations from two grateful dead minds that we respect and admire and whose opinions we value, we figured let's just get into it and we can talk about it for its 52nd anniversary, which is coming up in just, you know, by the time we release this, it'll probably be right around the 52nd anniversary on September 20th. So here we are talking about this show from the Fillmore East, but before we do, we should talk about the days between. There were days, there were days, there were days so, Dave, in the days between, you finished up your Alabama getaway, did some nice traveling, got back to your regular day job, which you did not quit. <laughs> right. And yeah, man, it feels so good to be back. Yeah, I'm sure. Back in the, back in the friendly, the friendly confines, uh, I saw Nine Inch Nails at Red Rocks during the days between, which was really really great. I'm not a huge nails head, my wife is, and so uh, it's a show that I went in and didn't really recognize like a ton of the songs, but I did recognize a few, which was cool. And they played two David Bowie covers that were really great. Whoa. I'm sure that was a um, it just, really cool sound, especially in that venue. Oh, amazing. Yeah, Red Rocks is the best place to see a concert, like, period. I've I've only been to two concerts there now, but, like, I think that the next time Dead & Co. are there, I think I'm going to be in attendance. Their sound system is just better than any other sound system. Like, it, it, like... It's the best. I don't know how to describe it other than to say that you can hear the singing and the different instruments so clearly like their PA is just amazing. And I think that it's also part of the fact that you're outdoor and the sound is just echoing off these massive rocks around you. But the other thing I love about that venue is that unlike a lot of other venues, especially a lot of like indoor intimate venues where you go see a show and then you leave and your ears are just kind of ringing and you know, it's, it's still, it's part of the experience. It's something I enjoy, but it is nice to leave red rocks and, be able to like hear yourself think i guess even at a rocking show like uh nine inch nails so it was cool uh they obviously trent Reznor is well renowned for having like really innovative light shows and so that was really cool to see what they did uh the last song they played was hurt one of their most famous songs and they did this cool thing with the spotlights 
changing who the spotlights were on as different people kind of their part of the song stood out. Um, that was really cool. So overall, just a, a really great live music experience, really cool cap to a great summer of live music for me. Uh, I don't have any concerts upcoming that are in the plans. So I guess we will find out, uh, what's up next. Maybe I, I honestly don't know what, well, hey, Bob, we're in the Wolf Bros have a fall tour. Maybe uh, maybe they're up next. I would love to, but they're not really coming near me, unfortunately. <sighs> and I used so many vacation days traveling to see shows over the summer and spring <laughs> that I just don't have that many left this year. <laughs> so uh, that that's all okay. But yeah, so uh, the light show, awesome. And that kind of is a nice turn into this show. An Evening with the Grateful Dead with Lights by Joe's Lights and an opening set by the New Riders of the Purple Sage, September 20th, 1970. Let's talk about it. So, getting on with the show, what's going on with the band at this time? It's September 1970. It's the Grateful Dead lineup from the early 70s that you know and love. Two drummers, Mickey and Billy. Pigpen is there, kind of isn't there, but he's there. He plays a couple songs. Uh, what's going on in the fall of 1970? The top album is Cosmos Factory by CCR, a great record by Creedence Clearwater Revival. It's their fifth album, and it was, coincidentally, recorded at Wally Hyder's in San Francisco, which is the same studio where the Grateful Dead recorded American Beauty right around this time in 1970. Like, they could have been leaving this concert to go back to San Fran to record American Beauty, for all I know. Uh, I found it hard to find the exact dates that they were recording at Wally Hyder's, but um, they were there during this year in 1970, and as were... Creedence Clearwater Revival to record this album. The top three Billboard songs. Number one, Ain't No Mountain High Enough. Number two, War by Edwin Starr. And number three, Looking Out My Back Door slash Long As I Can See the Light by Creedence Clearwater Revival from the aforementioned Cosmos Factory. Oh, man, that's strong. Pretty killer top three. Yeah. Yeah, that's all killer, no filler if I've ever heard of it. (laughs) And all three songs that have like stood the test of time. Like you could, you could hear all three of those songs on the radio around the country and probably around the world still today. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. Classics. This is a pretty tough birthdays segment, Dave, from <laughs> September 20th. It's probably the most lackluster I've found, to be honest. I mean, you said that last time we had a decent poll, so <laughs> I mean, let's give it a oh, shot. I wish this was Sidney Ponson's birthday. Instead, we've got... Formula One and auto racing legend Juan Pablo Montoya. Okay. Canadian baseball. Hey, I mean, you're a big Formula One guy, so that's big for you. Yeah, this year has been a tough year in Formula One, though. None of my guys are doing well, unfortunately. But that's that's okay. Um, Canadian baseball legend Jason Bay. Go Pirates. There you go. <laughs> and American actor Gary Cole. Bill Lumberg in Office Space. He's in Veep. Uh, Ricky Bobby's dad in Talladega Nights. Yeah, and a bunch Gary- of stuff. Gary Cole's one that's pretty strong. Again, I that's not a bad pull. Yeah. A really good actor. I'm, I'm a big fan. So happy birthday to Gary Cole and Jason Bay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, one very sad, well, all the deaths on this date are sad, but uh, Jim Croce died in a plane crash on this day 
uh, just 30 years old at his death, which is just brutal. I mean, he had penned so many great songs, such a talented musician. Um, so to, to die at 30 years old is just unimaginable. So rest in peace, Jim Croce. His son is actually on tour right now, uh, touring as Croce Plays Croce. Uh, And I think it's just him with an acoustic guitar playing his dad's tunes, which is pretty, pretty rad. So if you are a Croce head, go check that out, maybe. The year in Grateful Dead history. Interesting year. Um, You know, in many ways, I think you could argue that it's among the most interesting and impactful years in Grateful Dead history. First, to start the year, Tom Constanton leaves the band. Um... I mean, we both enjoyed what he was doing in late 69, but I don't think that the band really needed him per se. You know, there's not a lot of piano at all on this in this concert, and I really didn't feel like I was missing too much. Now, compare that to 72 with what Keith is doing, and it feels unimaginable that you wouldn't have a great keyboardist in the band. But Constanton, I don't know. At this point in time based on how good this show is and how consistent they were throughout 1970, especially with their album output, I don't think that they really missed him that much, frankly. Later in January, January 31st, the band is busted down on Bourbon Street, arrested, um, and, you know, set up like a bowling pin, as they would say, in trucking. Um, so that's, uh, you know, an impactful time, as they all, <laughs> well, basically all were arrested. In March... They discovered that their manager, Lenny Hart, Mickey's father, had been robbing them blind as they're already massively in debt to their to their record label. That is a pretty tough thing to learn. Then in March, they enter the studio and in three weeks turn around Working Man's Dead, one of their album masterpieces. Um, you know, definitely one of their, I think, objectively th- three best albums, no matter how you slice it. Um, really kind of that album fulfills a lot of what Garcia and Hunter had been working on in the past year. A lot of the new songs they had incorporated in 1969, the different direction they were starting to pull in. And, um, it really kind of just, I think brought them to a different level with what they could do and what they could accomplish in a recording studio. Then that comes out in June. They had a regular opening act, the New Riders of the Purple Sage, with Jerry Garcia playing pedal steel for the rest of the year uh, before he kind of stepped a little bit back from the New Riders and really focused on his work with the Grateful Dead. And their shows begin to get longer and longer and longer. You know, we had earlier this this summer, um, Dave's Picks 43, which is two full concerts that fit on three CDs. This concert would have to be on four by itself and, and it's representative of what they were doing at this time then later that month they crossed canada on the festival express with janis joplin other great acts of their time great contemporaries in september they've got some spare time so they go back into the studio and produce american beauty another top three grateful dead album that also comes out in 1970 in november um and in the fall they say what the hell and begin a bunch of college shows and a big college tour that really kind of cements them as a massive touring band. And not that they didn't have other shows throughout the year that were huge because they did, 
and like you know shows that have been released so many shows have been released from 1970 throughout the winter you know th- there's a run at the film released in february that people adore in may you have the harper college show that is just one of the most beloved grateful dead shows around and then later in the year too um so just a great year of touring they played 140 shows they were all over the place including europe including canada including all over the united states they played everywhere so a great year for the grateful dead and i think it's kind of impossible to argue 1970 their best year in the recording studio because working man's and american beauty in the same year is just pretty much unprecedented so great year for the grateful dead i'm glad to be talking about it and i'm kind of embarrassed that this was such a blind spot for me i really had not listened to much live 70 besides the um dick's picks i think it's volume four uh the harper college show and maybe a little bit from that Fillmore east run in february but I had not listened to a ton of 1970, I have to admit. So the tour. This is not part of a tour. This is just a four-night run at the Fillmore East, Thursday through Sunday, uh, billed as a night, an evening with the Grateful Dead. The new riders of the Purple Sage opened each show. Then the Dead played an acoustic set and one or two electric sets. So Jerry is playing live from like 8 to like 2 in the morning pretty much every night when you combine his pedal steel with what he's doing with the Dead, which is just insane to me. Bill Graham is, so I, let's talk about the venue again. This isn't part of a tour, so we can kind of skip past that, that part, but the, the film release is Bill Graham's venue in the East village of New York city, then known as the lower East side. It was originally built as a Yiddish theater in 1926 and then became a movie theater, uh, known as the village theater before falling into disrepair and then eventually being taken over by Bill Graham in 1968. So Bill Graham, obviously a hugely impactful person in the Grateful Dead's careers and the history of American live music, listened to his other shows in New York City just that week in in 1970. He was promoting a Steve Miller band show that he was putting on, Pink Floyd, The Birds playing with Van Morrison opening for them, and Four Nights of the Grateful Dead. Insane. Meanwhile, slightly further uptown, Led Zeppelin was playing New York City that week at Hunter College. According to the newspaper ads that you can find on our our good buddy Grateful Seconds website, he, he found all these newspaper clippings from this time. The only act that was sold out was the Grateful Dead <laughs> among those. <laughs> so uh, pretty remarkable. Yeah. And just goes to show you what a heady city New York was at this point in time. So the Fillmore East, as I said, that's kind of how it came into Bill Graham's hands. It had a capacity of 2,700, and typically bands were booked to play two shows on Friday and Saturday, an early show at 8 p.m. and a late show at 11. This weekend, because it was an evening with the Grateful Dead and Bill knew how long they played for, they just were booked to play one night. But the Dead played 15 nights at the Fillmore East in 1970. It was the only place they played in New York. I think Bill probably would have lost his shit if they would have played anywhere else, (laughs) given that he was booking them. Um, and in those 15 nights, they played 21 shows Oh my um, God! at the Fillmore East in 1970 alone. The, Fil- the Fillmore East was only open for three years, but they were three impactful years, 1968 to 71. The list of not just live acts, live albums that were recorded at the Fillmore East is truly absurd. Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin, Jefferson Airplane, Taj Mahal, Carlos Santana, Sly and the Family Stone, The Who, 
Neil Young and Crazy Horse, Frank Zappa, Miles Davis, Joe Cocker, probably most famously of all, the Allman Brothers, and the Grateful Dead have seven live albums from the Fillmore East. Holy shit. The fact that all... It's unbelievable. Yeah. Like, that... Neil... Then you think about all the people who played there that didn't have live albums that came out from the Fillmore East, but like that just shows. alone is nuts. Three years, that many like legendary acts that put out live albums from this venue just goes to show what a special place it was. When you look at pictures of it, it's really kind of cool looking. The stage is, the fans are pretty much right on top of the stage and then there's an upper balcony section. Like a lot of New York buildings, it has a very kind of thin footprint within the city block and then it just goes back deep so pretty long venue i guess but a really cool one um after it closed from being under bill graham's management it continued to operate under a bunch of other names in the ensuing years um but then it eventually stopped serving as a live event space altogether and now i believe it is a bank (laughs) (laughs) so (laughs) that's kind of tough yeah time marches on um, that's kind of all I've got on the Fillmore East. Uh, Dead played there 42 times during its run as an active venue. They, by all accounts, really loved it there. The people who went really loved it. You can hear people like Gary Lambert and others talk about what it was like to see shows there and pretty much universally beloved venue. Uh, there's a really interesting, I'll put this link in the show notes. Um, there's an interesting post that, uh, that Bear, Owsley Stanley, posted about recording at the Fillmore East. And there's a legendary show in February where it was Love and then the Allman Brothers and then the Dead. And there's been, I guess, a lot of misinformation that people think that they played an early show and a late show with those lineups. And Bear basically puts that to rest and says, we started at 9 p.m. and ended at 6 a.m. as this one show. So there was no way in hell we could have done two shows when it already lasted like nine hours <laughs> as it stood. Um, yeah, he, and he was like the band, like the roadies setting up for each of these bands, like the Allman Brothers also had two drummers. So like they had to go set up everything for them and then clear everything off. And then we had to go set up everything for the dead. Like there just would have been no way to do two shows, but it's really interesting to read what he says about the challenges of setting up at the Fillmore East, what it was like to perform there and um, what it was like to record there. So definitely check that out in the show notes. Uh, It's a pretty cool one. Let's get into it then. The Grateful Dead at the Fillmore East. Okay. Good evening. Please welcome the Acoustic Dead. So like many of the shows that the dead were playing around this time, uh, they opened this with an acoustic set. Like I said, the evening with the grateful dead format, um, open acoustically and then come back out electric. Have you ever seen a a show that was billed as an evening with so-and-so? No, I haven't. Have you? So I went to see one of my favorite all time bands cake and it was billed as an evening with cake. And 
I didn't really know what to expect, but they played a great set. Then they like stopped and said, we're going to take a set break, but before we do, we want to give away a tree. And they gave away a tree to someone in the audience and made them promise to be like a good steward to the tree and to take care of the environment that the tree was in. And then to send them pictures of the tree once it was fully grown. It was a Fuji apple tree. And then they were like, all right, thank you. You can go take this out to your car. And while you do, we're going to take a set break. And then they left and came back and played like another hour and a half. But um, it was really, really cool. And I mean, you know, the way Dead & Co. plays now and a lot of other bands that don't, they just don't have an opener and they make it kind of an evening with them. It's just not as regimented as this where there's an acoustic set and an electric set. So this acoustic set is great. Amazing. Yeah, this is some of their best plan. It's an interesting contrast to the 69 set where they were playing a lot of kind of old standards that they just knew how to play on acoustic. Mm-hmm. Whereas these ones, they are taking Grateful Dead songs and playing them acoustically, which I'm, I'm really prefer deeply. <laughs> yeah, because the first one they dive into, Uncle John's Band, is fantastic on acoustic guitar especially now that they so have good. yeah especially now that um they've it's been developed a little bit uh the melody portion has been figured out a little bit more from that 69 show it's a lot of these songs from working man's and american beauty almost feel like they i know that they weren't designed to be acoustic but there's so much acoustic in them already that it just works and this one perhaps I would say maybe with the exception of Ripple, better than any of them. It's just like you can picture people playing this around a campfire on acoustic guitars. Man, it's delightful. I loved this as the beginning of the show. I love the pace that they play this song with. It's such a nice version. Phil is really high in the mix in the beginning and kind of fades a little bit as it goes on, but I loved being able to hear him so clearly at the beginning of the song. It's just, it was great. And then the soloing around the three-minute mark is just like, as twangy and fun as it gets. And that's kind of what this song deserves. I think. Yeah, absolutely. Right. I, I love how Bob went crazy on the rhythm near the end of the song around like the five thirty mark made it a little trippy and chaotic. Other than that little moment, it was a, a warm, pleasant invitation to the evening with the grateful dead. Yeah. It's fantastic. Such a great way to start an acoustic set. I really loved this song. So from this kind of peppy pace, we go into Deep Ellum Blues, which is slowed down. (laughs) I have never heard it played at this pace. Um, So it was kind of like a bit just very surprising at first, I guess. Uh, There was a lot that was surprising about this song to me because I didn't really know anything about this show going into it. I just went in cold and listened to the music. That was my first exposure. And so my first note is, is someone plucking a mandolin? Yes. Um, yes, someone is. Uh, <laughs> D- David Nelson is playing mandolin on this song, and he's doing a great job of it. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, I've never heard this song performed at this tempo, but I liked it. I liked it a lot. I thought this was a, a nice version of Deep Ellum Blues. Yeah, yeah, I dug the mandolin too. I, I thought the arrangement and the slower tempo was kind of a good thing. Yeah. I, en- I enjoyed it, and uh, other people enjoyed it too. It's uh, it's number three on Heady version. That's that's high up. Wow. Yeah, it is. Out of how many versions on the site? Ooh, that's a good question. Hang on. Or how many pages? I guess to give us a rough rough estimate. Forty five versions. 
pretty good. Okay. Well, so let's give a, a quick note on David Nelson, the man who's playing mandolin on this show. He was a member of the Wildwood Boys with Jerry Garcia. And then after Jerry began to play with the Warlocks, then named the Grateful Dead, he joined a, a different band. So as that's happening, you know, Jerry's going his way. David Nelson's going his way. They kind of are still in the same scene in the Haight-Ashbury and in, in Northern California. And then um, eventually uh, David became the uh, lead guitarist for the new Riders of the Purple Sage. So he was the, you know, the part of the opening act for this concert. Um, he played with them for another many, many years until the early 80s and then became a member of the uh, Jerry Garcia Acoustic Band on Broadway. And he contributed um, a lot of strings um, in the Grateful Dead's career on Oxamoxoa, Working Man's Dead, and American Beauty. He had contributions on all three. So, you know, he he's really good. Um, he's a really good mandolin player, really talented uh, musician. And so it was cool that they brought him out to play those same contributions. Um, and an, another guy that, that had provided similar contributions comes out a little bit later on in the show. So from Deep Ellum, they go into Friend of the Devil. We've talked about this song a lot um, because it's a song that I adore, but I'm not always crazy about the live versions. This is still so early in its life that they're playing it at, at a pace that I love, playing it fast. And having the mandolin is phenomenal on this song. It gives it that same kind of twang that it has on the album recording, and it just it just works so well. I love this live version of Friend of the Devil. Same. The mandolin takes it to the stratosphere. Everyone is playing so smooth, despite how quick it is. Like, everyone is on it, you know? Yeah. The, the, including Billy. Billy's doing some stuff with the toms, which you wouldn't expect in an acoustic set, but it sounds great. Yeah. So, so I noted, I was asking like, is there a timpani Mm. or, or is the tom just tuned super low because it sounded so big and so echoey. Uh, But I mean, you're right. It's not a drum piece you would expect in an acoustic show. Yeah. sounded great though. (laughs) Yeah, you're right. It's also the number three friend of the devil on heady version deservedly so yeah back-to-back bronze placements yeah they're both they both deserve podium positions for sure they're great this <laughs> has such a jaunty pace and like you said everyone is just still really tight with it despite how how nicely it's moving along um i mean it's just really good speaking uh, of really good big railroad blues is up next which yeah was not a song I was expecting to transpose to acoustic as well as it did, but I was really digging how well this sounded acoustic. Totally agree. Um, so I, I guess I should say, I'm not sure if it was David Nelson or David Grisman that was the first mandolin player that showed up in the beginning of this concert. It's definitely one of the Davids, but I know that David Nelson is playing banjo on this song because someone who was there posted something where he he said that that David Nelson picked up a banjo but I could have sworn that it's this song where at the beginning Phil says and now David Grisman on another mandolin or something like that if I remember correctly so 
I'm pretty confused at which David is on stage at what time. They eventually will both be on stage, and I think both playing mandolin for the not the next song, but the one after. Um, but there's just a lot going on here. You hear that kind of plucky sound throughout this song that suits it so well. And um, it just has like this hoedown vibe to it, this song, that coming out of Friend of the Devil, you're kind of in that sort of a headspace already. I was at least. And so I appreciated it even more and was just so here for it. As this song continued to go on, I just kept enjoying it more and more, I think. Number 11, Big Railroad Blues on Heady Version, another front page version. It's a, it's a strong start to a show. Yeah, it is. And, and you know, just, other than Deep Ellen Blues, all songs that are they're playing with some pace, some heat behind them. And um, the next song, Dark Hollow, is the same. They have a really nice pace to this song. Really great singing from Bobby. Love the way his voice sounds on this song. And I, I've, I've always liked him singing this song. It's just nice. But I also really like Jerry and Phil, what they're doing throughout this song. Their playing is excellent. And so all of that just kind of combines to make for a really great and memorable acoustic performance. Okay, so let's talk about Ripple. That's the next song that they play. When I listen to this song, my first note is Goat. Greatest of all time. And I texted you because you are on heady version duty. That's one of the things that you do in your show prep and said, I don't want to spoil it, but this has to be the greatest live version of Ripple that's ever been played. <laughs> and you said, oh, I don't think so. Or like it's second at the time. It, but, it was it was second at the time. And then three days later, I was actually doing the notation prep and it it moved into a tie for first. And so I texted you and I said, you've got an opportunity to change history. <laughs> and I, I was happy to heed the call. So this is now officially recognized as the greatest live version of Ripple on headyversion.com. Now listen, reasonable minds can differ. This song was only played 41 times. This is not a song they played very often live at all. And most of those versions were played during acoustic sets that they played in 1980 and 1981. So this is a very early version. This is only the fifth time they'd ever played this song live. And the first that they played with a live mandolin. If your cup is full, may it be again, let it be known. There is a fountain that was not made by the hands of men. There is a road. And it's just perfect. I know that there are some people who were probably at the versions in 1980. I mean, some of those Radio City shows, when they broke out Ripple, it's almost like hard to hear the band because the crowd is going so ballistic, which is amazing. And it makes them so fun to listen to on Relisten or the Live Archive or whatever. It's, it's tremendous. 
And so it's not like I'm saying that those versions aren't great because they are. They're amazing. But this with the mandolin and with the sparkle that this song has is a new song that they've they haven't even they haven't even released yet. Um, I mean, it's just as good as it gets to me. I think the vocals are just exactly perfect, like for a song that they have not put on wax yet to be as crisp as it is. It's just fantastic. I mean, I, I adore this song. I think pretty much every Grateful Dead fan does. It's hard for me to imagine a head who's like, you know, Ripple, just not for me. <laughs> um, I think that it's one of the great songs to start the B-side of a, of a record mm. out there. And it's all made all the more special by the rarity you know that the, the fact they didn't play this live very often right and so hearing one that's this good with this mandolin and it's just tremendous yeah chef's kiss so i'm happy that we have now corrected a great no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, i am happy this is number one on heady version though because i hope that it'll make more people uh, go listen to it from here you know what actually this is a good opportunity to talk about this the recording quality of this is not that great of this show um the versions that we have the sound is a bit inconsistent it kind of fluctuates and you know i I don't know how to describe you can see what i'm doing with my hand (laughs) (laughs) right yeah and you're making like a a pulsating motion with your hands uh, and, and that's what's going on the the one consistent person you can hear is jerry jerry is strong the whole show but like bob and phil kind of take turns oscillating in and out not only volume wise but like both sides of the headphones wise which was kind of a little trippy yeah it makes me wonder if bear was doing that on purpose oh. like to make it a more trippy sound oh maybe he, would, he was their engineer at this point yeah but yeah, I agree with you. It's it's strange because they do. And then you get to the electric set and you can hear everything Bob's doing. He's so loud in the mix and it's really cool. But um, yeah, it, there, is, there are a couple songs where it gets kind of dicey. I think Caution is maybe the best example where it um, the audio gets kind of dodgy. Um, the acoustic set, it's, it's not terrible but it's also not the cleanest recording. There's a reason why this hasn't been put out, right? Like as a live release, you know, if, if these, the if what we're listening to are the soundboards and even some people who have done like remastering of the soundboards and it still sounds a little bit dicey. I can see why they've never put it out as a live release. But I think that that's part of why uh, maybe this ripple had not gotten as much shine as the eighties versions, which are beautiful recordings. So, you know, maybe, maybe something to that. Uh, anyway, from ripple, they go into, to lay me down. So Jerry Garcia is playing the piano on this song, which is very interesting. Very not cool. Some, yeah. Not something you hear every day or really ever. <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't think that he has very much, if any experience playing piano and singing at the same time, especially at a live show. And I think that the result of that is that he's struggling a bit with his voice on this song. Um, he maybe has a hard time hitting a couple of the high notes that he hits in this song. Um, but the playing is great. There's much more forceful drumming on this song than there had been in the, the songs that came before it, especially on the, the bass part of the drum. 
uh, on the low end. Um, but this is a really good version. This is only the third time they had played this song live uh, at this point. And so they didn't have a ton of experience with it. And having Jerry step up and play piano because they didn't really have uh, a pianist at this time. They had Pigpen, but I don't know where he was during this acoustic set. You certainly don't hear from him. Um, I think that he, he kind of needed to do it. And being the great musician that he is, he <laughs> stepped up and did it. <laughs> um but yeah, it's interesting to hear him playing piano on this track. Allegedly, Robert Hunter wrote Ripple to Lay Me Down and Broke Down Palace in one afternoon, all while drinking some yeah. Retsina wine. I've heard that story before. With like a case of wine or liqueur or something. Ret, yeah, Retsina. I've, I don't know. Yeah. Um, I, I've, I've heard that story before and I've heard him describe it as like a like uh like a creative wave that crashed over him and just this one kind of beautiful moment of creative inspiration where he penned all three at the same time which is insane and wonderful for us that you know we get to reap the benefits (laughs) right it is crazy you already touched on the busted down a bourbon street incident from the year before but now we go into an acoustic trucking yeah so this song was debuted in June and um and then would would come out on uh, American Beauty, obviously the the final song on the album. Um so Truckin a a great song, a Grateful Dead classic, there's no doubt. Uh this is the final of five live acoustic versions of Truckin. So if you want to hear Truckin and you want to hear it in maybe its final form, this is the way to go. So over the weekend, my brother was in town to watch the Yankees AAA team playing here in Durham, North Carolina. And when we were driving to the concert, his favorite Grateful Dead song is Casey Jones. And because that's what opens the electric set, I played it for him. And he was like, was Casey Jones a real person? And I was like, yeah, he was. But I don't think there was any cocaine involved in his train accident. <laughs> and my brother was like, so why that line then? Where does that come from? And my best guess was it was 1970 and cocaine was just in the air. <laughs> And as evidence of that point, I played him this song. I rewound like five songs to the line, living on reds, vitamin C and cocaine. And then the crowd's like, woo. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Crowd went nuts when Bob said that. It was so funny. They're like, oh yeah, we did that. Great. (laughs) Uh, It just made me laugh. (laughs) Um, So yeah, this, this is a fun version. Very locomotive. Bob is pretty good with the lyrics. Not bad, Bob. Yeah, he crushes it. He gets a little bit of the benefit of a slightly slower tempo, like with the acoustic arrangement. But yeah, he did a great job. I don't know about you, but for me, it was kind of a little jarring a little bit. After back-to-back Ripple and To Lay Me Down, Mm -hmm. these beautiful ballads, Truckin' came out, and I, I was like, huh, okay. So like a little jarring there, but within, once you get past it, I mean, once I got past that, they managed to capture the like playful spirit of the guitars on acoustic just as well as they would on the electric. And there's a little bit of piano again, I noticed. Interesting. I didn't pick up on that. That's a good catch. I'm a, I'm a big fan of this, of acoustic trucking. I think that they did a really good job with it. 
Same. I wish they would have played it during the 1980 run, to be to be honest. But that's all right. Um, a song that they did play during the acoustic run in 1980 is up next, Rosalie McFall. I really love this song. I feel like I could listen to it all day, and especially... All day, all night. This is excellent playing. Yeah. It's just a lovely song. The mandolins add so much, too. Yeah, and unlike the Friend of the Devil and Deep Ellum, where Jerry kind of supported the mandolin, here it's it's flip-flopped. The mandolin kind of plays a supporting role, but it does it so well. It sounds so good when it does that. Uh, yeah, this song is just tremendous. In the sweetest rose of color, I rose experience that you had with ripple yeah that's the experience that i had with this song yeah it's excellent jerry was made to sing songs like this one like his voice just works so perfectly on it yeah yeah absolutely you get that like tenderness that is so moving in his voice and he just really knocks it out of the park they only played the song 17 times all during 1970 and 1980 as acoustic versions uh, you can hear other versions, I think, from the Jerry Band and other, like the Jerry Garcia Acoustic Band. I'm pretty sure they played this song as well. So you can check it out there. But man, this was excellent. How does th- how did this fare on Heady Version? Also number one, just like your Ripple. Yes, as it should be. This is a lovely version. And, le- and you know, with the mandolins, it's just, it's a different experience and a great mm-hmm. one. Mm-hmm. Speaking of different experiences... <laughs> The next song is Cumberland Blues. Now, I had never heard this song acoustically ever. Uh, and I was just delighted. <laughs> just, I loved this. They played this song acoustically 19 times, which really surprised hmm. me. That, all of them. Yeah, that surprises me too. Yeah, all of them were in 1970. And this was the final version. So they had been playing this all spring and summer during acoustic sets. Wow. And man... The mandolin playing in this one is similar to Rosalie, where it's subtle and it's just like really wonderful. It fits into the background. Uh, it suits this song so well, though. And just, God, Jerry's soloing in this song around like the three minute range is phenomenal. And Phil's accompaniment to that is great, especially kind of coming out of the solo and at the end of the solo. Just an awesome version of a, a song that's just really beloved uh, for me. I, I love this song. This is one of my favorite Grateful Dead songs. So I, I, I totally get it. It's just interesting that it's, it's so new at the time and that they were eating it up as much as they were, which is great. There are two more acoustic songs um, on that are going to be played uh, this evening. Um, the first one up is another Working Man's Dead song, New Speedway Boogie song that's right before Cumberland Blues actually on that album um this song we heard when it was played for just I think the second time they'd ever played it on our Dave's Picks 43 episode um by this (laughs) coincidentally enough this is the second to last time they played this song 
period before they shelved it for 21 years. Uh, they didn't play the song again. Uh, they played it one more time after this and then didn't play it again until February of 1991. So this was the last time they played it acoustically ever. And then the second to last time they played in the 70s or 80s. So by the time this came back around, it was with Vince on keys. But this is a really good song. And it's one that sounds notably better than the version we heard from December 69. It's mm-hmm. way more fully formed both musically and lyrically. Yeah, it's much better. I really liked what Bob and Phil were doing early. like And like you talked about, the lyrics are there now. And this just works so well on acoustic. What they talk about in baseball when a relief pitcher has a really bad outing, they just want to get back out there and pitch the next day, you know, and like put that put that behind them. The last time we talked about this song, we talked about it as the worst ranked version on Heady Version. And it feels good that new Speedway Boogie got to get back out there and get another relief appearance in there. And talk <laughs> about a 180, because this is the number one new Speedway Boogie on Heady Version. Yeah, I can see that. It's great. And I think that um, this song really works acoustically, too, because it does sound like Jerry's just telling a story. You know, and the, mm. this like a little yeah. storytelling song like that just works acoustically because it, it sounds like it's one of your buds telling you a story in a basement somewhere. <laughs> um, and then so, yeah, I, I think that that's part of maybe what people love about this is that that acoustic vibe. But OK, that is great. I'm glad that it could get back out there and really make amends for what went wrong last time. <laughs> yeah. Nice. So that was the penultimate acoustic song. The final one is from American Beauty. So another song that had not come out yet, Broke Down Palace. Man, this is the this is the sixth time that they had played Broke Down Palace live, and it's just an amazing version of, for my money, one of the Dead's most beautiful songs. Um, I have a very emotional response to this song when I hear it because I read a story that someone wrote one time about, not to not to bum everyone out too much, but about how like a lot of people, when he would leave his house, he would put on music for his dog. A lot of people do that. Dogs are, get calmed by having some noise going on. And so he would put on the Grateful Dead channel on Sirius when he would leave the house so that his dog would have music. And that, unfortunately, uh, when he put his dog down, he played this song to kind of help him settle down for that moment in time. And reading that person's story and just the heart and the love that he wrote about this dog with, and then the lyrics of this song, I love you more than words can tell, man, just, it gets me, it hits me in the heart every time. I've heard this song live three times, and every time I have been like, literally choked up in the concert venue. So this is a song that has real emotional resonance for me, and hearing this early version, like I said, only the sixth time they had played it live, acoustically, with just as gorgeous an outro coda as you'll get for this song with the Da, da 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 that part uh just phenomenal i think one of many highlights of this acoustic set It 
it's interesting the listening experience to this show now when you know broke down palace ends and then you get bill graham introducing them again <laughs> saying once again the grateful dead and then it goes into casey jones it is absolute whiplash in the in the moment i it wouldn't have been because there was a set break but that electric riff shakes you right out of this like blissful, mournful vibe that you might have from Broke Down Palace. You're still kind of, you know, wiping the tears from your eyes. And then you hear, and it's just like, oh, shit, here we go. <laughs> These tight little <laughs> snare rolls that are going on in the background. You're like, oh, man, there's the snare drum. And the crowd is eating it up. I mean, this is a great version of a great Grateful Dead song. Yeah, a highlight for me was Phil stepping on it at like the two minute mark. Mm. We kind of couldn't hear him before this, uh, but right at the two minute mark, he roared in, and it was fun to listen to. Yeah, Phil sounds really good on this song and throughout this electric set. It's I love the so Casey Jones is the last song on Working Man's Dead. I love kind of the upsetting of expectations of hearing it first in the set list because a lot of bands the song that they picked to open their album, it makes sense that that would also be a good song to open a live show. I can think of a couple of concerts I've been to that that's been the case. Um, and so this is kind of putting that on its ear saying we're going, we're getting right to the, right to the quick. <laughs> Here's Casey Jones off the rip uh, and in, enjoy this good old electric grateful dead. This solo absolutely shreds like Jerry has this solo down pretty clearly i mean he's already recorded it for the, for the studio because this album's out but god yeah this is a great version and what is it like six minutes long it's not like an exceptionally long or jammed out it's five minutes long not an exceptionally long or jammed out casey jones but it is a bit longer than the album version and so they do find some extra space to play with and just as good a way to open an electric set as i can think of and then a strong second act in the electric show with the China Rider. Still in that era where China and Rider together comprise only about what, less than 10 minutes the jam is, you know? So pretty tight. This one was unique in that the China Cat Sunflower, which usually starts a little hot, had this low energy intro where they took their time and really built it up. Uh, but the highlight here for me was the distortion setting jerry and bob had as their settings on their guitars yeah something about it sounded a little different than usual and it gave the solo an edge from jerry coming in hot and kind of shredding and bob getting weird with it in the rhythm it had a different edge than usual and uh and i appreciated that yeah i agree and it's interesting that the tone especially of jerry's guitar shifts the tone that it has in the beginning kind of changes a little bit as the song goes along Bob's rhythm is so high in the mix on this and it, it sounds really great. I just, I just don't really have much to add. Just a, a good version. It's pretty much like what you would expect for this era. And I mean that in the best possible way. Yeah. And then we go to a song that I kind of wish was in the acoustic set, uh, a little candy man, which I don't know. I thought would have been so neat to have in that acoustic part. Yeah, it does seem well-suited for uh, for that, for sure. Yeah, I, I agree. This would have been nice in the acoustic set. And they did play it acoustically throughout this year. There are a bunch of shows from June and July where they played it acoustically. And as a matter of fact, 
the night before this, they played it during the acoustic set. <laughs> so they actually switched it well, up. There you the, go. On the 18th, they played it electric. On the 19th, they played it acoustic. And then on the 20th, this night, they played it electric. And then the next time they played it, it was during the an acoustic set between Ripple and Friend of the Devil. So they were really just put, putting this wherever they wanted around this point in time. Um, but even despite that, did you did you like this version? I did. I, I enjoyed it. I think once again, um, the tones on the guitars were really interesting and, and they really helped carry this song. Yeah, it sounds like he's making his guitar cry almost. It's yeah. really interesting. It's like wailing. <laughs> what? Yeah. Well, I mean, what about you? Are you a fan of this song in general? Like it? Don't really care for it? Uh, I actually don't care for it that much, to be honest. This is like, mm. this song and Black Peter are probably the two songs off Working Man's and American Beauty that I'm most likely to skip when mm. I'm listening to those records. It's It's not that I dislike it. It's just like, yeah... Just not my favorite. Why? What do you think about it? Yeah, I, I enjoy it. I, I like how sad and mournful it is. Um, it makes you think. Yeah, I do think that this is a this song is maybe one of the best examples on American Beauty of the how well they were doing stacked vocals at this time with uh, Bob and Phil, like their supporting vocals are really good. And there's a great scene in the Grateful Dead documentary um, long strange trip where Jerry is like coaching Bob on how to do that, like how to sing the comes around again part of the song, which is just a really cool scene. But yeah, I, it's it's not a song that I like hate. It's I I don't skip it when I'm listening to the record. But again, it's just not quite my favorite. The next song I actually like considerably more. Uh, Sitting on top of the world, it's an old standard, but the Dead play it so well. Uh, this song has really been malleable over time. It's been played by, covered by people in a lot of different genres. Um, but this version is really rockin'. And it's like reminiscent of rock and roll roots to me, especially the the solo that Jerry rips off. Uh, well, the solos after both of the verses are great. Uh, Bob's rhythm around it is awesome. And it makes sense because Bob is great as a rock and roll rhythm guitarist. That's really a strong suit of his. But the solo that the soloing that Jerry plays is great. It reminds me of Bodhisattva by uh, Steely Dan. The solos that he's playing, just kind of like bouncy, and um, and just really good. I, th- I thought this was a a really nice version of Sitting on Top of the World. The masses agree. Number eleven on Heady version. Yeah, all right, that's pretty good. When I was saying that the sitting on the on top of the world solo reminds me of Bodhisattva by Steely Dan, I just quickly looked that up while we were taking a quick break to confirm my suspicions that Skunk Baxter is the guitarist on that solo, uh, which he is. And so he's a great uh, he's a, he's a great guitarist. I mean, inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame as a member of the Doobie Brothers, but really, I mean, extremely influential within Steely Dan. I think on like three of their albums, he was their, their primary guitarist. Um, and he's, he's been known to rip off some great solos. And so, uh, I, I think that it's kind of, it would have been maybe offensive to Jerry if I would have been like, it reminded me of Steely Dan and it was some random slapdick session guitarist that was uh, playing that solo. But given that it was skunk Baxter, I think that that's, uh, that's high, high praise. From Sitting on Top of the World, they go into Big Boy Pete. 
This is a fun song. So this is the sixth time they played this song, the first since New Year's Eve, um, and the last until 1978. This song, they only played it eight times that we know of, period. Um, and it has very like mid to late 60s dead vibes. Like I could totally picture this song being played right smack dab between Alligator and doing that rag. When I saw this on the set list, I was like, I don't actually know that song. And then when I came up to it, I it did vaguely ring a bell in my head, and I was pretty just happy and smiling while I was listening to it it's like this is just a good song (laughs) that they play well same goes for the next song me and my uncle I felt pretty much the same way it's just like this is just a good steady version there's not a lot of like snarl to it like there are on some versions Mm -hmm. just more of kind of a bouncy version with just some really good energy yeah next up was a new one for me easy wind a pig pen song I do think this is a really good version of easy wind they only played this song about 40 times they were done with it by April of 71 a good Pigpen original. Uh, I would have liked to have heard it on uh, Europe 72. It would have been an interesting contrast to have this Bayou bluesy song in these European concert halls. But um, just a nice a nice version. Pigpen has a good harmonica solo around like the 243 minute mark. It's really nice. And great drumming with all sorts of pounding on the toms throughout it. And then just some really primal playing in the back half. Like, go to the eight-minute mark and let it ride from there, and that's just that good old primal Grateful Dead music. I need to go back a step. I totally forgot about this. So after Sitting on Top of the World, they actually played Good Lovin'. Um, They just don't have that on the tape. So there's, yeah, there's one recording on the archive where you can hear about three or four minutes of Good Lovin'. But they actually, after Sitting on Top of the World, they did Good Lovin', drums, back into Good Lovin'. We just don't have a record of it. So Pigpen started at that point, presumably, and then that's why he's there for uh, Big Boy Pete, me and my uncle on the organ, and and then Easy Wind, him singing. But um, yeah, so the the couple minutes you can hear of Good Lovin', it's a good good little jam. But yeah, we we don't really we don't know how all of it went. Um, after Easy Wind, they play Sugar Magnolia. This is a fast version. This is only the eighth time they had played this live. Um, and I, I was going to ask you, is this one of the first times they played this? Because this is a raw, young sugar mag. Yeah, definitely. The wah in the beginning of this song? It, it almost sounds like a different song because of how strong the presence of that wah is. Yeah, it's intense in the beginning. But at the same time, that raw chaotic energy was endearing it was kind of neat to see where the song started out from uh, to then what it would become in the in the end in the masterpiece of of europe 72 could not agree more yeah and even maybe arguably even more so at veneta Veneta. yeah yeah um, you you got that on your draft board and that's a great great version of sugar mag mm-hmm. absolutely uh just a little under two years ago from this date but yeah i mean they played this song all four nights of this run at the Fillmore East. The solo in the three to four minute range is just gnarly. 
There is so much wah. It is absolutely breathless the way that Jerry's playing it. It feels like it's like hard to breathe when you're listening to it. Um, well, plus just, the drummers and plus the cowbell. Yeah. It's like a, a recipe for chaotic success. Yeah, it's true. And this is when we, we, we are into like, I would say, they're starting between Easy Wind and this. They are like feeling those primal Grateful Dead roots during this part of the concert. But then <laughs> they bring the energy all the way down after this song by going into Addicts of My Life. This song had only been introduced into the live set in May, and they played it three more times after this in 1970, twice more in the fall of 72, and then not again until 1989. So, yeah, these slow songs from this era, from uh, from American Beauty, they just they put on the shelf. Said, so, ah, we'll get back to it. <laughs> um, uh, well, and I guess uh, New Speedway from, from Working Man's Dead, but... Yeah, I mean, they just bring the energy all the way down for this song. This is a nice version. I really like this song a lot, and I liked this version of it, but it's very jarring to hear from Sugar Mag into this. Yeah, similar to that acoustic truckin', uh, it feels out of place. Uh, And that's not to say it's a bad performance encompassed within itself. It's great, but it feels like they were really ramping up to some primal energy. Uh, like imagine if they had gone into Not Fade Away, right, from Sugar Mag or, you know, something like that. They would have been on yeah. this roll. Uh, but they took a nice detour. Yeah. I, I, I'm here for the detour. I did enjoy it. It's just, it is a, a jarring experience to go from that primal, energetic Sugar Mag into this. But that's okay. I mean, they only played this song 49 times, so I, I shouldn't be sad about any of those 49 versions. Like, welcome please you know um from here they go into mama tried which is typically a set one song and so it was interesting to hear it so late in the show but uh i this kind of like me and my uncle i I just don't have a lot of notes on it because it was a pretty straightforward version i i felt and i mean i'm i'm here for mama tried this is a song that they played well Um, but i'm really here for not fade away and that's what we get after this you want Primal Dead, Dave? You got it! <laughs> <laughs> and you're gonna get it with that raw energy and not fade away. three-minute guitar solo from like the three-minute mark to the six-ish minute mark i just sat back and enjoyed the the raw energy oozing out uh and i, and I should point out the drumming here was whoa good so strong from from the very beginning um it's like really a focal point in in the mix uh, on this song, the drums, and it just sounds like Mickey and Billy are beating the hell out of those toms. It sounds like they have more than four arms, frankly, when you hear what they're doing on this song. It's great. 
but yeah, I, I like the part that you're talking about with the solo. I think that that's right around the time that we get a little uh, going down the road feeling bad jam. Um, and then around the 10 minute mark, we get a bid you good night jam. That's really groovy and leads into an absolutely smoking solo from Jerry, which then they bring down into just some really kind of mellow, cool playing. Um, and then a fill solo, which is pretty good. Not, not something you hear every day and that just melts away. And then we're back into the familiar, not fade away theme. Um, it, this song is an absolute journey and a, a great one. I think that the song that it goes into is caution. And generally, if it's these two songs back to back, I typically, based on my sensibilities, tend to enjoy caution more. This is a rare occasion where I enjoyed not fade away more than I enjoyed caution. Yeah, I'm with you. The journey word you use that's a good word the journey was so great uh with how often they played not fade away uh this is the number 36 version on heady version wow which is like top six or seven percent um and for good reason this it's good stuff yeah and like a lot of these rankings where these songs are so high it's made all the more impressive by the fact that the again the audio recording is the audio quality is not that great it's this is not a pristine album release and this has never been released live. So this is all coming from tapers who had this song throughout the 70s, 80s, 90s. And then the word has spread to people like us. And, you know, everyone recognizes just the the brilliance of the, the musicianship during this song. Caution is just that good psychedelic rock. It really brings us out into the primordial ooze <laughs> at a certain point in this song. Um, I love Phil taking us for a walk right around the seven minute mark and then Pigpen coming out with some really good rap right after that. Uh, the audio gets a bit dodgy by the end of the song. I, I think maybe just cause there's so much going on with the sound. There's just a lot happening, but um, it's great. My favorite part is around the 11 minute mark. Phil's just driving that bass and taking us for, you know, another, a different type of journey than the one we got on not fade away. But, it's it's just a really good psych rock moment of the show. Yeah, I completely agree. And Phil is just like running a marathon on his fretboard, like up and down all yeah. over really the entire show um, or song, Jesus. <laughs> uh, the bass wins the gold here, and like you, t- you touched on it, a good, not great caution. Uh, but... From caution, we go into a great, not good feedback. Yeah. And if you think of so this is an 18 minute long caution uh, coming on the heels of a 15 and a half minute not fade away. So it's 35 minutes ish of really good music and then a six and a half minute feedback. So now we're up to like 40 minutes of just really good and interesting and free form and free flowing grateful dead music and when i heard this feedback obviously given that it was recommended based on me asking about hearing feedback live i liked it even more knowing that it was something that's really stuck with gary 52 years later that how, how great this feedback was um it's kind of scary it's pretty intense <laughs> and it's really good and is really fitting uh coming out of the not fade away and caution that we that preceded it the beginning was a little scary, but I thought the middle suite was really pleasant. Yeah, when they get quieter. Yeah, and and really almost peaceful with how um, 
Serene. Yeah. Yeah. Serene is a good word. Yeah. Like a, like wonderful when the organ and the guitar noises are coupled in together around the two thirty mark. Thought that was for me the highlight of this feedback. Um, and the number 10 feedback on a heady version. All right. Yeah. It's funny. It's like the, the scary part in the beginning that you obviously recognize based on you saying, yeah, the beginning was scary. I think perhaps that maybe sticks out the most in my head just because it's like the most raucous and like big moment of the feedback. And then like you're saying from there, it becomes much lower key and just, yeah, interesting. It's, it's worthy and worth it at the same time to quote our friend Jim in Maryland. Um, and, a really nice way for them to bring us into bid you good night to close out the concert. It would be equally interesting to have like a really ferocious, scary feedback all the way into bid you good night, but having those moments of serenity and then getting the most serene song of all right afterward and a nice long version of we bid you good night is uh, I think just great yeah and there were great harmonies too uh you know they didn't do this as the encore for every show but because of the acoustic opener this just kind of felt like the right show to do this beautiful exit with totally yeah it felt it felt great so that is the show and a great one it was September 20th, 1970, The Grateful Dead at the Fillmore East. If you haven't listened to it, well, I'm sure you've listened to it now if you've listened to us, but I'm, I'm glad you did. I'm glad we did. This is a great show. And thank you to everyone who recommended it to us. Gary Lambert, David Gans, Zach Cropper. Great recommendation by you guys. So um, before we sign off and tell everyone to follow us on Twitter at Working Man's Pod and Instagram at Working Man's underscore pod, what else do we have to do? Dave, we got to draft some songs, right? We got to take one song from the Fillmore East and draft it onto your imaginary playlist. So, what song do you need to take with you, and why is it Ripple? <laughs> because it's the greatest Ripple of all time, there and you because go. there there aren't that many live versions of Ripple out there. I don't have that many to choose from. This might mm. be my best chance to get a Ripple onto my imaginary playlist. Well, there you go. So I'm not hesitating. I'm grabbing Ripple with both hands, hugging it in tight, and taking the money and running when it comes to this Ripple. I'm very happy to have it on my playlist. I will say a couple of others that I definitely would have considered. The Uncle John's Band opener I thought was really wonderful. The Broke Down Palace closer to the acoustic set. The Casey Jones opener to the electric set all kind of in there for me as well as the Not Fade Away. So there are a lot of really good contenders, a lot of great songs from this show. Uh, and a lot of songs I would have been very happy to have on my playlist, but it's got to be Ripple, as you said. Which one are you taking? I am taking Rosalie. Lovely. Yeah, I I thought it was excellent. I almost took the new Speedway Boogie, but ultimately I got pulled in by Jerry's incredible acoustic playing. I think it's an unassailable pick. Yeah, it's great. thank you. Well, that is going to, that's going to do it for us. Uh, unless you have anything else to add, Dave, I think that uh, we can close this up. 
No, let's do what the dead did that night and bid you good night. Good night. Good night. Good night. That's it. That's it. You got it.